breath. Welcome, everyone, to the Seattle Sports Union podcast. This is Matt, the damn dirty duck, who's uh, stolen the show this week. I've abducted it from Abraham. I tackled him, and uh, he'll be talking again soon. We'll see. Um, and joining me tonight is Brian, the Soul Man Solak, Abraham up? himself, who I just made that up about. And we have an amazing guest for us tonight. The one, the only, the man, the myth, the legend, the Graz. From 30 years of broadcasting, from Seattle U, a basketball play-by-play guy, all-around great guy, and willing to spend time talking to three schlubs like us. Welcome on the show. Well, thanks, fellas, and we'll see if you still think I'm all-around great guy in about an hour or so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we will. You're you are a true legend in all of our eyes, and thousands of people around here so well I, I really appreciate that and i've had a chance to listen to some of the shows you guys are doing a terrific job and i appreciate the opportunity thank you that's a nice compliment we appreciate that i i want to start out with something fun before we we grill you about your life um you're well, apparently you're, we're grilling you like, apparently this is a real <laughs> high intensity high no, pressure. I, said, I said anything goes so whatever you can do <laughs> You 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 get in a shipwreck with John Clayton, Jim Moore, and the gas man. Who do you hope to survive with, and why? What? Um, probably <laughs> the gas man because I could live longer after we resorted to cannibalism, eating him. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> he's got the most bo- he's got the most meat on his bones. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, Interesting. Yes, I yes I did hear what he said about me when you asked for quick thoughts from him about a month and a half ago. <laughs> I've, been, I've been waiting to wind up and fire that shot. And I may have a few more. Outstanding. That's what we want to hear. <laughs> oh, right on, right on. Um, I also have to ask, back in the day, you lived in the Lake City area. Yeah. I worked at Murray Calendars at Northgate. I swear I saw you there a few times. Am I correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. We lived in, uh, we lived actually on 25th Avenue uh, Northeast in, in Lake City. It's, uh, I lived in Bellevue for like the first six months, but Lake City is the first house that me and my wife bought. We just loved it there. And uh, yes, we frequented the Marie calendars. Yeah. Sunday brunch, I believe. I think I saw you there a couple of times. I would say that, that, that Sunday brunch was absolutely one of the, one of the, th- one of the times in there. And I, and I don't know if you ever served me, but if you did, you, you'd be able to, you'd be able to uh, reinforce one of, one of my principles in life, which is tip big. I don't. Maybe I didn't. Then you. <laughs> you would have remembered. I tipped. I, I, in those days, I I definitely tipped big. I've always believed in tipping big. Tip like a drunken sailor. Why not? It's at least something you can put up in the positive column. They can at least say something good about you. Well, he tipped big. He lived. He lived from this this year to this year. Was a good right. tipper. Right. Exactly. Solak, I am learning so much about your stockish vibe, you know, vibe nature, uh, whether it's stalking the gas man at, at a lunch or stalking Dustin Pedroia in Phoenix. I, Oh my God. What is going on with you, man? <laughs> yeah. Brian has a little, a uh, little bit of a aggressive stalker tendency. I think, I think that's what we like to go to kid him about. In, he a, really good, doesn't. in a good way though. <laughs> way. Sure. Sure. Just a little light <laughs> not, stalking. Not, Never hurt not anyone. Not in the bad way. Not in the bad way. Yeah. No. <laughs> Nobody gets hurt. <laughs> usually. 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 Yeah. It all goes according to plan. Yes. <laughs> 
Thanks, Abe. <laughs> hey, hey, um, hey, Roz, I got a question for you. Um, yeah. Back yes, in sir. the day, back when you were on the radio, um, you made a big uh, change in your life and you started walking to work. I believe uh, you were working uh, at KJR at the time. I, I can't remember. Mm-hmm. It, it gets confusing sometimes. But um, were you walking all the way from Lake City? Downtown? Actually, from the U District, it was our second house from the oh, U District. Okay. And it was actually, actually, um, I had six-way heart bypass surgery. Whoa! Uh, back in two thousand and um, I think it was two thousand and six. And uh, so, uh, you know, obviously, I had to start exercising. I wasn't doing it. I hadn't taken very good care of myself up until that point. And so, I said, "What's the best exercise to do?" And they said, "Walking." And I said, "Walking." That's actually exercise. And it's, well, you know, if you walk for more than an hour at a time, it is. So, yeah, yeah I, I, that's when I started. Actually, uh, I, I started walking to, to and from KJR from uh, our house in Lake City. And then we, we rented a place in Fremont for about six months. And then we bought a place downtown. We've been downtown here in the heart of Amazon land since it really got started about 16 years ago. And yeah, I've been, I've been walking ever since, although unfortunately I've been on the shelf lately. I need a knee replacement. Oh no. Oh no. So I've been, uh, I've been, I'm, I'm like a caged animal, but I can't even pace. I have a oh. walker temporarily until I get that surgery done, but no, yeah, I had, I had heart surgery and, and that was, that was a way of, uh, a way of, uh, exercising and, and being healthy. And I really came to love it. I mean, I, I didn't mind doing it in the rain. I mean, some people said to me, you're going to walk in the rain. I'm like, I live in Seattle. I mean, if I, if I say I'm not going to walk in the rain, what's the point? You ain't going to walk. <laughs> so I had a tremendous amount of, of rain gear and, and uh, yeah, I, I definitely, I definitely enjoyed it. And, and I'd say for the last, yeah, the last 15, 18 years I was broadcasting, I was walking back and forth to work. Wow. Good for you. Good for you. I heard a story about how you got started, got interested in broadcasting. I believe you were around 11 years old. Mm-hmm. Would you sh- would you share your first experience when what made you decide? Sure, to do what absolutely. You to do? It was in Akron, Ohio, and um, my father was a general manager of a radio station in Akron, Ohio, and they also had a television station. And this is 1971. I'm 60, 62 this year, so uh, I remember going into work with him uh, for the first time and saw his uh, his office and and his secretary, and you know, was I'm a kid, an 11 year old kid. It's great. You know, nonplussed entirely. He takes me down to see the TV station, which has got huge cameras. It's kind of cool. And and I, I remember thinking that that's kind of neat. And then we walked down to, to see the radio station. And and the station back then in 71, like all AM stations, were pretty much the boss jocks like uh, KJR used to be in the Pato Day era here. And I, I stood there looking through this pane of glass in, in this room that had white cork board on the side to, to absorb the sound. And there was a big, huge microphone in the middle of it. And there was a guy, and I'm, I mean it literally, he was barking into that microphone, you know, doing, it was Jolly Jack Ryan, and he was doing his, his AM radio thing, and he was smoking, smoking non-filtered cigarettes and was uh, at, at a can, a can of Maxwell House coffee, not instant coffee, just Maxwell House coffee, and he was taking spoonfuls of it and eating it. And I looked at this, and uh, yada, 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 I've been doing it ever since. I mean, that, that, that I, I said, Dad, this is what I want to do. And so I, I literally, at 11 years old, seeing that scene, knew that, that I wanted to be on the radio. And, wait, wait. Uh, it, so it you, wanted, you wanted to chain smoke and, and eat coffee directly? <laughs> yeah, it got even worse than that. And then, you know, since the, there was sort of a, 
a romance about heavy drinking and reporters back then, Damon oh, Runyon yeah. and guys like that. I included that in the mix, which certainly contributed to having heart surgery at at the age of 44. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I, I, uh, I just, it really, it really hit me. And I, I literally within two years, my, my father was letting me intern and I uh, went in and I worked on a show. My, my dad, my parents were great. And, and my dad was, was just really my, my motivation for everything. And, and at the time he had, he had hired a black guy to work uh, on the weekends, which there wasn't much of frankly on, on AM radio back then. But uh, he was a guy who, who knew the sound in Detroit, the Motown sound. And he called himself Papa Soul. And his real name was Sam Whitworth. And he was from Mobile, Alabama. And he told <laughs> my dad, if your son wants to come in, I'll, I'll show him the ropes. I'll, I'll teach him some stuff. So for, for a year and a half or so, to almost two years, I learned radio from, from uh, Sam Whitworth, from Papa Soul, on Saturdays and Sunday nights, listening to Motown music. And uh, learn how to cut tape, and and you know it was you know you want learn how to use your voice because back then I mean it was important to have a good good pipes and have good technique and and the whole thing and and uh, so it was great you know being able to learn from him and and literally I did my first on air thing when I was 13 years old uh, I don't remember much but I remember the South Big Blue led by the scoring and rebounding of John Mullen defeated Ellet 76 to 55 at the first game at Firestone which was the first thing I ever said on the air, and that was uh, in October of 1973, and I've just uh, been doing it ever since. Who were you, who were you covering at the time? That was a high school basketball game. Oh, okay. Firestone High School was the, was the school, so I, I actually just did a, did a little report on on that. But I didn't I didn't really get into doing it. You mentioned the Seattle U and and uh, basketball and and Seattle U, and that's a really important part of my story and my opinion. But but that story kind of gets started. Um, a couple of years later, we moved from Ohio to just outside of New York City, and uh, it's 1975. I'm 15, and and my uh, father is gonna is looking to carry some local basketball games. And there's Iona College in New Rochelle, New York. The radio station was in White Plains, New York, and uh, they had just gone back then. They were Division Three, and if you wanted to go Division One, you just went Division One. You just announced it, and you you started going <laughs> Division One, and so. They announced that they wanted to do it, and uh, my dad was thinking of carrying the games, and and I had been practicing in front of a television set with the mic turned, with the sound turned off, uh, with my little tape recorder in hand. I've been doing it for two years, and and you know, he said, you know what, I'm going to have you do these games, and if you think you can travel and not be a problem, and I was excited as hell and went in, and so my my dad met with Brother Driscoll. It was a Jesuit school, just like Seattle U. And, and he says, well, let me meet your new basketball coach. And, you know, if, I, if we get along, we'll, we'll do it. And so we go in to meet the new basketball coach. He's a guy that you've probably heard of named Jim Valvano. And, of course, within five seconds, my dad knew that Valvano was, was going to be a good guy for it. And uh, my dad was the greatest salesman in the world. And, and I'll tell you why in this story. Because so he says to Jim, well, Jim, it's a pleasure to meet you. It sounds great. I really think you're going to turn it around. We want to carry your games. My son here, David, is going to do the games. He's 15 years old, so you'll have to look out for him on the road. But <laughs> he'll be 16 by the time the season starts, and it should be okay. And and Valvano's <laughs> like, wait, wait, stop, stop. Go back. He says, what do you mean? He says, We're going to carry the games. No, after that. My son's going to do the games. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you want me to look out for him? And he's like, Al. My dad's name was Alfred. 
Al, I can't look out for your son. I've got a, I've got a basketball team to run. I can't, I can't look out for your son. And my dad looks at him and says, but you have to, he's only 16. <laughs> and Valvano says, but he, I can't, I've got a basketball team to run. And again, my father repeats himself. He says, but Jim, he's only 16. That's <laughs> why so I was such a great salesman. So ultimately Valvano knuckled under and I did, and I, he had checked me and treated me like uh, like a member of the team, but I got a chance to do big time college basketball from the age of 16 to about, uh, to, I think that I was 20 years old with Iona college when Valvano left is when I moved out to California. But, you know, so I got off to a, to a great start with that. And, and, uh, my father unfortunately passed away a couple of years before I had my heart situation. And, uh, so when I, when I came back and the Seattle youth thing presented itself, which is another story I can tell later, if you want, uh, the chance to do Jesuit basketball again, really resonated with me because of the past with Iona and Valvano and, why it was really very special and very important to me very cool yeah thank you for sharing that uh you mentioned going out to sacramento um i, I listened to another podcast which i won't name but a couple weeks ago you were on and you told a story about uh, the, the wrestling came to town and i think you're yeah. doing, the, doing the mc um would you would you share with our of audience, course, especially, course, especially with man. Abraham, about your your story about George the Animal Steel? That was I was <laughs> laughing so hard I was crying by the end. Yes, please be well, my friend and tell me about George the Animal Steel. Oh yeah, well you know like, like everyone. I mean, I was mid twenties in Sacramento and and um, was actually doing backup play by play for the Sacramento Kings. So I was doing twenty or thirty games a year. Was uh, you know came up with the idea of doing a one hour post game talk show that that actually worked out really well because the Kings were super popular that first year. So I got uh, involved with everyone at Arco arena. I got to know the guys running the arena really well. And this was right before uh, Jim uh, Vince McMahon, uh, you know, took out the competition and put wrestling on TV all the time. This is when they were still traveling, but they had Hulk Hogan. So, I mean, this was right on the cusp of it absolutely exploding. And so they, they had like, I think three groups running and they were, they basically come and do a show every six weeks in Sacramento. Oh, wow. And so it's about a year into it. And, and I remember getting a chance, you know, they asked me if you, they're looking for someone to do ring announcing, if you want to do it. And I said, sure, I'll do it. <clears throat> and it paid 150 bucks and they gave you a hundred dollar bill and a $50 bill, which was awesome. Back then <laughs> you signed a piece of paper and that was it. And there were old ex wrestlers were the ones running the thing. So it was chief J Strongbow. Well, it was the guy who was in, in charge of, of the group when they came out West. And so, it's going great. And every six weeks I'm, I'm, I'm running, running a tux and I'm doing the, I'm doing the ring announcing for wrestling in front of 18,000 fans. It's just fantastic. <laughs> and remember the time they had Hulk Hogan in there, which was like what it must've been like to see the Beatles. There were literally people standing and just screaming, just, just, ah, <laughs> not even yelling his name and stuff. It, it was so wild. And so I don't know, about two years into it, the, the arena manager asked me one night out of the blue, he says, Hey, how would you like to take a wrestler home? What, <laughs> what do you mean, take a wrestler home? To adopt the wrestler program? Yeah, <laughs> right, right, right. And he says, well, I mean, you know, they're all staying at different hotels. And I mean, just giving a guy, they need rides back. There's no bus or anything like that. If you want to give a guy a, a ride back to the hotel. And I said, well, geez, I'd love to do that. Absolutely. And uh, he, he said, well, who do you want to take? And I said, well, um, you know, I, I guess. Uh, and he says, how about the animal? And I'm like, no shit, George Steele, really? <laughs> he says, sure. <laughs> so literally, I, I go walking back, and there, there he is, 
He's wearing an overcoat. He's, you know, bald, sweaty because he was in the main event. His tongue is still green. Remember, he used to paint his tongue green. Yeah. And, and I got no idea what to expect. And it turns out he's a very soft-spoken guy who was an educator, who was an educator Teacher. in Michigan. Yeah. And, and um, anyhow, I said, look, would you like to go out for a drink? I had a regular bar that I went to back then, just a dive bar. And, and uh, he said, sure. And I'm like, this is just unbelievable. I, I can't believe this. I'm going to take all my buddies going to be there. And I'm going to come walking into the bar with George the Animal Steel. They're not going to believe their eyes. So we, we walk in there. And actually, my girlfriend at the time, her, her mom was in the bar. This is where I actually met her in this bar. And there was their regular bar. And she was just a drunk and a really nasty drunk. <laughs> and so I actually said to George, I said, you know what? If you scared the hell out of that woman, that would be fine. And so <laughs> he sits down next to her and she, she looks at him and goes, well, who the, ble- who the fuck are you? <laughs> and he just looks at her and goes, and sticks his green tongue out. And she's like, oh, falls off the chair. It's the funniest <laughs> thing ever. He stays for, you know, till closing. You know, we have, you know, must have 10, 50, well, felt, felt like that many. Five or 10 drinks, you know, him buying rounds, me buying rounds. We're getting along great. It's just fantastic. So I take him back to his hotel and uh, just a night to remember. That is so six, really cool. six weeks later, they're back in town and, and he's with them, but no one says anything to me. You know, I kind of was looking to ask if we wanted to, you know, me to take him home again. And <laughs> I take him to his hotel again and, and I don't hear anything. No one says anything to me, so I don't think anything of it. And so it's flash forward to six weeks later or 12 weeks later. It may have been 12 weeks later. They're, they're back in again. And this time. George is in the main event against Randy Macho Man Savage. It's when he's got the lovely Elizabeth as his manager. And George, the animal steel, had that, that crush on her at the time. And so I go in and, and, you know, I'm in my rented tux and I see the chief and he says, here, sign here, kid. And, and he gives me the 150 bucks. He says, oh, by the way, the animal is pissed off at you. Oh, oh, <laughs> <And> my heart <laughs> drops. <laughs> and I'm like, what? What? Why? Why? I don't know, kid. You said something about uh, you took him out for drinks one time and then you didn't take him out for drinks the next time. And he's pissed. And I'm like, but, 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 but no one, no one told me to. I mean, I would have, <laughs> I wanted to, I was hanging around, uh, you know, he's not really pissed is he? He's like, look, kid, all I can tell you is he's upset and look out for yourself out there. Now I'm in a, a complete panic. I'm like, what do you mean? Look out for myself out there. What are you talking about? He's like, look, kid, we're live here. If he catches you, he's got to do something to you. <laughs> Those words to this day still ring in my head. If he catches you, he's got to do something to you. And it's going to be in front of 19,000 people. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm panic stricken. I'm hoping that he'll stick his head out because sometimes those guys would do that, you know, in between look at the other matches and stuff, and he doesn't. And so I'm doing my ring announcement. So I'm nervous, man. So it's it's time for the main event. And he's he's Macho Man's coming out first. So introduce him and he gets the booze and everything. And his opponent from Benton Harbor, Michigan, weighing 290 pounds, and, and he comes out at a full run, <laughs> which he normally did anyway, but he stops about halfway up the ramp and points at me. And goes, you! <laughs> and I drop and roll. And I roll out of the ring in my touch. <laughs> Land on my feet. And for a second there, I'm like a cartoon character because there's those really cheap, shiny shoes that are really slick. And I'm running in place for two or three steps. Then my feet finally catch, and, and I run around once, and, and I'm, people are laughing, and I'm, I'm dying. I'm like, I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to make it around another time. And he's going to catch me, and he's going to do something to me. 
So we go around the second time and, and thank God the lovely Elizabeth, you know, felt, you know, just, just leaned down and kind of made a gesture and, and got his attention. And, and so he kind of looked at her and, and I got out of there and it was all right. And of course that night I did take him out for drinks and I said, I'll never forget. Uh, uh, from now on, it's, it's a guarantee. I'll be waiting outside for you. <laughs> and I said, you wouldn't have really done anything to me though. Would you have George? You caught me. And he just looked at me and says, you know, it's showbiz kid. You got to. <laughs> so I, I still, you know what? I, I'm, I, I get a little, I get a little sick thinking about it because that would have been awful if he had caught me because he would have done something horrible to me. Hey, he's got to protect. But, uh, he's but protect yeah, it was it actually, it all turned out well, but it was, it was a lot of fun doing that for a couple of years. And, and that was just an unbelievable experience. That's really cool. <laughs> he's got to protect kayfabe though. You know, you can't, uh, back in those days. Right. Um, <laughs> so I know I've, I've used to actually be on, um, I believe it's channel seven. You used to do sports, uh, uh, on yeah. the news. Uh, did you ever get a chance to, to meet, uh, uh, Wayne Cody? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the whole reason why, I mean, when I, when I, the story of coming to Seattle really quick is, is, um, I was in Los Angeles at the time and I was doing morning, I, I through a series of crazy events and, and strange happenings. I actually wound up getting hired to do morning drive in Los Angeles replacing Gary Owens, the guy from laughing. I'd never done news before. I'd never done anything like that before. And, and again, I can go back and tell this in context later, but you know, I wound up moving to Seattle because I want to get back into sports. And so I looked into it and I said, well, if you want to do sports in Seattle, there's this guy, Wayne Cody, who's doing everything. So I either got to get his job or I got to figure out what he's doing and how to compete with him. So I absolutely knew who Wayne Cody was. Um, I actually, well, I was hired by KJR first, which was an accidental thing in, in the first place, but my whole goal was to get to Cairo anyway, and did, and actually worked with Wayne, uh, for about a year before he, before they kind of eased him out. Uh, so we, we, I worked with him. I worked with Bob Blackburn too, when I was first, did my first show at KJR oh, cool. with him. So <clears throat> I got a chance to kind of bridge the gap between a lot of guys. That's awesome. And because Bob, Rob, you worked with Bob Robertson too. At I did. That, that, that's, 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 you know, when I was, when I was at KJR and, and, you know, the, the, again, the goal was to kind of get to Cairo. I, I, I wasn't paying attention. Sports radio was just starting. KJR was probably the third station to do it. I didn't believe for a second it could work that you could have sports <laughs> on the radio all the time. And, uh, you know, Barry Ackerley, I had a lot of respect for him and I really enjoyed working for those guys and, and, and really enjoyed working for him. I didn't think it would work. It didn't make sense to me. And so I, I, in my back of my mind, I was always going to go to Cairo. And so I'm getting ready to do a show one day and a salesman comes in just as I'm about to go on the air. And, and I get a phone call two minutes before I go on the air. And, um, the call is, you know, I said, who's, who, who is it? And it's a, the guy said, his name is Joe Abel. And I said, I don't know who Joe Abel is. I've never heard of this guy. And the salesman who walked back there says, well, he's the general manager at Cairo. I was like, oh, so I picked up the phone and, and, um, talked to him and, and then got hired. And, okay. and so then went over, <laughs> went over to Cairo and, and then you asked me, I forgot, I forget the original question you're asking. Was it about, oh, no, about I was just saying, TV? I believe you came on channel seven after Wayne Cody had already left. Uh, I did because yeah. what they did then was they did, um, out of the box. I don't know if you guys remember that, I but do, now it's, what, it's that... what everyone's doing now. Back then people <laughs> thought it was ridiculous. 
It was having anchors walk and talk. So the newsroom for the radio and TV station were actually part of the set. And so they had me filling in for a while, but that was, it was originally Wayne Cody who did it. He, he was replaced by Steve Rabel. When I got there, Rabel had taken over full time and he was doing the, the sports line show and, and they were backing him off that and just having him do pregame. So I was hired. I, I know where I'm going with this. I was hired <laughs> to do um, to do the sports line show, but I really wasn't going to go over there. And Pete Gross had passed away. And, and look, for me, radio was still play by play. And, and uh, I want to do the Seahawks games. And I'd done college football. And uh, Joe able to said, look, we'll definitely give you a shot at the Seahawks. I don't see why we wouldn't do it. And and then I get there and he says, by the way, we're not going to have you do the Seahawks after I signed the contract. <laughs> and I'm like, all right, fine. And he says, but look, you can do color for Washington State and their play-by-play guy's really old, so you'll probably wind up doing those games. <laughs> and that's Bob Rob. That's Bob Robertson, who, who I think had, what, 18 more years left in him? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or, but yeah, that was, I mean, look, the, the three years at Cairo were were fantastic. I mean, it was the 95 Mariners. I was the guy doing pre and post game. Right. Actually got to do a couple of innings of play by play that year and travel with them. I mean, that was just amazing. It did the Cougars games for, for three years. That was the Palouse posse, Chad oh, yeah. Eaton, who wound up becoming a, a real good friend. Mike Price actually got very friendly with too. And, and I had a great time with those guys at the Rose Bowl a few years later doing those Cougar games was, was just absolutely fantastic. But, you know, kind of knowing at the time that well, you know, I walked away from, from KJR, which is really what's going to work. And then, um, you know, I had an idea that, uh, that I could do a show with, with the guy who produced me originally, who was, was Mike Gastineau. And we actually did a dry run in Phoenix with a friend of mine who was doing sports radio down there just to make sure that our chemistry was as good as I thought it was. And it was. And so I went back over to KJR just in time for the 96 Sonics run to the NBA Finals. So had, had a great little run there. Yeah, you did. Uh, one uh, many memories with you at KJR and seven ten was your your show used to come on after. I think you used to come on after the sports, babe. If, if that yep. was correct, you, you guys talked and talked forever, and, and I, I, you guys had some of the most amazing conversations. I mean, I, I had to go to work unfortunately half the time, but what? How you guys just have that great chemistry, or what? what, what that's, 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 uh, you know, I appreciate you bringing that up, uh, Brian, because it's funny. Um, me and Nancy, I mean, I, 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 I like Nancy immediately. I had no problem with her. In fact, we were doing. I was doing the show, and um, I had. I, I don't know. It was Gaff, it might have been Rick Dupree who was producing that day, but uh, Jeff Smullyan had a. You remember Jeff Smullyan, of course, owned the Mariners, yeah, and then yes. he bought them, and then <laughs> and you know what? It, it, it was really kind of unfair in a sense because he bought them, and then baseball got hit with um with the collusion. with the big the big um collusion, collusion penalty, yeah. and so Smullyan bought them for thirteen million. Now owes twelve million because of what <laughs> other owners did. So we remember that he, he's out. He's looking at going to Tampa, and I said we got to talk to someone in Tampa. If there's anyone doing sports radio down there, and there was this woman, I said, who's calling herself the fabulous sports babe, but didn't hear her. There was no way to listen at that point. But I said, let's have her on. You know, sounds interesting no matter what. And we went on the air. She was a great guest. I told our PD, Rick Scott, I said, look, you know, if we're looking to expand or looking to hire someone, uh, this Nancy Donnell on this fabulous sports babe is terrific. And she will turn this town upside down. She is completely (laughs) different than anything that you would expect. I've never heard a woman who, was taking the approach that she's taking, which is fantastic. And, you know, it's funny you brought it up because one of the things that really, really boosted both of us, both me and Nancy, was Bruce King, the legendary anchor over there at, uh, at uh, Como for years and years and years, 
made it a point to call both of us uh, separately and say how much he enjoyed. We just did a 15, 20 minute crosstalk segment in between shows, how much he enjoyed it. And, and uh, you know, I really did too with her and, and I uh, wasn't surprised that, that shortly after I left, you know, ESPN came knocking and she had the national chance. Um, yeah. You know, she was, she was, she was, a, she was a tad difficult to get along with for, for a lot of people. And she ran into her own issues, but boy, I had a, I had a great time with her and, and, we really had great chemistry immediately, which, you know, knock on wood, I've been lucky enough to have with, with, with people who are good broadcasters. And she was a great broadcaster and is I, a great broadcaster. I believe, uh, I believe she even uh, filled in for you a couple of times, right? When you had uh, your heart condition. She did. She did, as a matter of fact, and, and did a really nice thing for me on, on the kind of when I sort of, you know, stepped back into, a, into the emeritus role, they called it a couple of years ago. And I stay in touch with her. Uh, through Twitter mainly, she's had some tough health health issues herself. So we've got that in common that we're both both struggling with that stuff. But but she's great, man. She's she's just great. And and it's it's you know it, it it's about being honest with yourself and 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 things like that 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 um that really kind of paid off and and keeping friends. Like Nancy, for example, wrote a book uh, called The Babe in Boyland. And one of the things she wrote about it, and she talked about her time at KJR, was hanging out with a bunch of pot smoking white guys <laughs> and i remember some other guys on the on the sh- on the different shows being really upset at that characterization and i of course was not i've been a, a, a pot smoking white guy forever <laughs> and I, I thought that i thought it was really funny the way she put it and you know was not offended by it and, and wasn't upset by it and and remained really good friends with her i know a lot of people felt like that was that was crossing the line and i, I really never did so yeah she did when i had the heart surgery she came up and and did some shows and, and uh, has remained a good friend ever since, ever since then. That's awesome. That is awesome. Now you, uh, you actually started doing play-by-play for Seattle U in the two thousands. Um, were you there before, just to get our timeline, right? Were you there before sure. they went up to division one and whack? I'll tell you, or... I'll tell you exactly how that happened. Then okay. it was the year of, um, I'm, I'm working, uh, at, at, it's now clear channel. KJR is owned by clear channel <clears throat> and, uh, clear channel is a company is struggling. And so they, they call me in and tell me that they're, 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 I can't do my solo show anymore. They can't afford it. They want me to stay and uh, they want to keep doing garage with gas. So, you know, they're going to cut my pay by about 40%, but I was just going to do the two hours with gas. And it was a really good deal still, but I could see the handwriting on the wall, whether or not they, they, they liked me or not, you know, they were paying, they were overpaying me for just doing two hours. And it was funny that at this point, gas uh, was working on a book with Steve Rubin and Art Teal of the Seattle Sports Book of Lists. I don't know if you guys ever saw yeah. that or remember that. And yeah. um, and it occurred to me that, Jesus, this guy's got a backup plan. <laughs> he, he can write. He can do something else. And you know what? I got no plan. So I was thinking, what am I going to do? And and uh, one of the people in town, of the many people in town that I've met and really respected is a guy by the name of Gary Wright, who his name is in the Ring of Honor for the Seahawks. Gary Wright was the most, the best person at his job that I ever, that I ever saw. He, he was PR for the Seahawks. Uh, and, and, you know, I went to him. Look, look, Gary Wright in 1976, when the leagues merged, actually a little before that, the leagues merged in, in 71. Pete Rosell decided every year that every single team's PR staff would have a chance to run the Super Bowl media, right? Mm. 1980 was the Seahawks turn with Gary Wright. And after that 1980 Super Bowl, he says, you run it from now on. And he ran it for the next 26 years. So wow. he was, he was the most competent person I ever knew. And, and I had lunch with him and I said, look, I, I, 
I can sense that, <laughs> that I'm, I may have trouble keeping my job at KJR for much longer. Um, you have any advice, any thoughts, anything out there? And he says, well, this is when the Sonics were, you know, you know, were bought by Clay Bennett. And I, for one, I, I said this on the air immediately. I, I, I knew the guy was going to move him because I had gone through this exact experience in Sacramento with the Kings. Okay. This is how teams go. This is how it works. <clears throat> the out-of-town owner buys them. He's already got some, some chits with the NBA. He, they're gone. They're leaving. So he says, you know, if the, if, if the Sonics go, and if Seattle U goes Division One and hires a good coach, that could be a pretty good deal. You should, what you should do is you should buy the rights and, and do the games yourself. You know, do the games and produce them yourself. And I didn't know what all that amounted to, but I said, that, that makes some sense. And, and um, he gave me one last tip. He says, and, and here's what you should, you, you should pay him for the rights. And I said, what? And he said, nothing. <laughs> Tell him you'll do the games. You'll, you'll, split the, you'll split the money with him. Really? And so it was a great idea. And it's exactly what I did. So the first year I did, the first game I did was the first game they played in Key Arena, which was Joe Calero's last year. And then I started with Cameron Dollar the, the year that he started, and, and I produced the games, and, and, I, and it was an incredibly lucky break for me. I was able to convince Gary Hill, who was actually <laughs> doing the games with Dick Fain in the years before that, to, to keep doing them with me, mainly because he knew how to produce, too. <laughs> and so he did the color with me, and I'm telling you, me and Gary had, had some of the best times I've ever had in broadcasting. We had so much fun. The Seattle U experience was absolutely fantastic. Uh, it's, you know, it's unfortunate it didn't work out as well for Cameron Dollar as, as, as it could have, as for them as it could have, but it was great. Bill Hogan was the athletic director. He's become a dear friend. I've stayed friendly with the Seattle U people. Uh, it, it's, it's one of the things that I'm, I'm most proud about because then again, it connected me with my father and doing Jesuit basketball again, and uh, it was just fantastic. So my first year was their first year in Division One. And uh, it was just, a, it was a fantastic ride. It really was. And they're 15, what, 15 and four this year under uh, new coach? Yeah. Uh, Victor or Chris? Yeah. It's uh, Jim, Jim Hayford, unfortunately, who I got to know a little bit. I did one year for Jim before my help wouldn't let me uh, continue to do it. Um, you know, he, he, he goes and, and here's Chris Victor, who had been there for a couple of years, stepping in and and uh, stepping up, I mean, they, they got a great situation and, and they're, they're clearly the best team that they've been up until this point. And, you know, having a great backcourt is, is a very important thing. So uh, I'm very excited to, to, to see what they're doing. And, and it's just been a great year for them. Did you get a chance to do play-by-play when uh, Terrell Brown Jr. was there? I missed him by a year. Okay, okay. Because he's with the Huskies I'm, now, and I was wondering. Yeah, he is. If there was he, any actually, did I miss him by a year? No, I, I, I missed him by a year. Yeah, I, I didn't. I never chance to do him. Yeah, he's he's kind of he reminds me of Mark McLaughlin who played for played for a bunch of teams over a bunch of years. And yeah, he is with the Huskies <laughs> now. But um, Isaiah Umpig is the is the the guard I remember the best is just being a a force. And and they really that's the year they um they I think the only year they up until now they played for the for the right to go to the NCAA tournament. They lost to New Mexico State, but um, Umpig was 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 a terrific player. That they, they, they really. Um, it's, it's really disappointing to me that I'm not doing the games anymore. And it was disappointing to me that we weren't able to me and uh, Bill Hogan, and a few other people over there had a kind of a vision for really making this thing take off at key arena. That didn't, didn't quite happen. I mean, it almost did, but it didn't quite happen. But uh, I, I just, I think it's a great thing going on there. And, and uh, Shani Fink is doing a terrific job and there's still 
a lot of people over there, you know, that, that I know and, and, and feel really fondly about. And I just hope because basketball is kind of the engine for it. They're, they're so overdue, some real good luck, and it would be fantastic to see them in the tournament. So, <clears throat> yeah, you want, you want one more question there, Brian? Uh, it's not Seattle you related, but that's okay. Uh, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I got to go back real quick to when you're working with Graz, I mean, Graz with gas. Why was that show so successful in the afternoon for three to five? Why was it so just because you guys are good buddies or why? Tell me, tell me one good reason why you guys. Were well, so cause popular. I'm a terrific broadcaster and, and gas was <laughs> smart enough to keep his mouth shut and let me carry him. Fair enough. Good <laughs> answer. Um, <laughs> We absolutely had, uh, you know, Mike, I met uh, probably I'd been out here for maybe six, eight months and they hired him to, to initially produce my show because we were, we were expanding it and in, in doing it just in the afternoon. And uh, we met at a Mariner game. He was actually in the press box and it took about three or four minutes. And I knew, oh, well, this is this guy's going to be a friend. And then within about a month of him producing the show for me, I was like, well, this, this guy, you know, we, we should be doing what we're doing here off the air, on the air. And uh, then I left and went to Cairo, but, but you know, stayed really, really in, in, friends with Mike. I mean, we, we hit it off immediately. And then I said, look, you know, we ought, to, we ought to do what they're doing in New York. We ought to do five hours in the middle of the day <clears throat> and uh, or at least do a, do a show together. And um, why don't we, and I had this friend named John Cannon, who's now selling real estate in Iowa, who was doing a sports talk show in Phoenix. I said, let's go down for spring training, get, get, get down there and we'll do an hour with John and just to see if it's as good as we think it will be. Mm-hmm. And, and it was, and it, it's, um, you know, it, it just, it, it, it worked because we we were both good broadcasters. We had completely different approaches and we weren't afraid to, to take a, take a walk on the wild side to do something that we weren't necessarily comfortable with. I mean, from my standpoint, uh, I had more of a, and I just, I'm, I'm just using the name, not, not comparing myself anyway, but a Jackie Gleason approach. <laughs> I did not believe in rehearsal. I didn't believe in, in, I don't believe in, in writing stuff out. I would go there cold and, and, and a first take is what it would be. I never liked discussing the show what we're going to do on the show that day. I liked just going in there and doing it and seeing what happened. And Mike was a producer first. So he, he used to write out some pages of stuff. And he, he used that and I did my approach and we both respected each other's approach to it, which was important. And, and, you know, it was, it could have been difficult because again, he was a producer first. And then, and I had the same situation with Bob Stelton, who also produced my show before we, we worked together oh, okay. and, uh, you know, just did not, did not let that stand in the way of, of potentially a good show. And then we just, we knew it was good. And, and if I could tell you exactly what it is, I'd bottle it up and, and, and sell it. Um, I think <laughs> yeah. me and Mike, uh, I'll be very disappointed if we don't have a chance to at least do one or two podcasts together still. I have no doubt we would absolutely pick up where we left off. I talked to him today, as a matter of fact. I mean, we're still really, really good friends. Um, and it, that, that, was, that was a big part of it. But I think being professional and, and having respect for, for the, other, the other guy having respect for the other approach, even though it wasn't like yours. And Mike, I know, and I know we talked to you guys about it, was the guy who liked taking calls. Yeah. I think taking calls was a, was a big mistake. I mean, I, <laughs> I didn't like it. So we found a compromise, voicemails. We found a way to involve callers in the show, but, but in a way that worked for – and, and I, I, voicemails, I think, was, was maybe the best thing that we had in that show, and that was entirely 
from the listeners. So it was, it was, we really found a way that's a good example of finding, you know, the two different approaches and making them work. And, and uh, we just, I think, you know, not taking things seriously, but, but, you know, the job seriously, but I, I also said this with everyone I've worked with, look, when, when the red light goes off, we can say whatever we want to say to each other when we're on the air, but not- when we're off the air, it goes away. We don't, <laughs> we don't rehash it. We don't, we don't say, Hey, why'd you say that to me? If it's something you didn't like, if you didn't like, take a shot at me the next hour. Yeah. And it just, it, it's, it was the healthy way to do it because we never let stuff upset us. Never, never got bottled up. So uh, it was, uh, it, it just, it, it's a rare thing to find a partner that you connect with on every level. And, and, uh, and we did, and, and it's a rare thing to be able to work with, with your best friend and not have any issues, which we also did. Now, is this, he going to put you in his same... movie? I mean, if he's such a good friend, he should put oh, you in movie. his movie. Yeah. No kidding, man. <laughs> <laughs> so gross. Uh, you just... know, and, and actually, uh, I've been in a movie. Oh, you've been. So I, 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 I get residuals every year from Prefontaine, about, about oh. seven or eight bucks usually, depending on whether or not Jared Leto's done a big movie that year, because that's when, <laughs> that's when the stuff pops up. So now nah, we'll, we'll see. I mean, Mike's, Mike's the book he wrote uh, on, um, on, on the guy at Delaware State. Uh, that Disney is going to look at that, 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 that deserves to be a movie. I yeah, mean, that, that, that's point. a terrific story. I hope it is. So yeah, Pre- Prefontaine, uh, that's the Oregon runner, even though they filmed it at UW, right? Right. Okay. Matt, just so you ought to know, they didn't even. Oh uh, yeah, I knew. <laughs> yes. He was an Oregon duck. Yeah. Actually. Yes. And, and in fact, the, the, the weirdest thing about that movie is for some reason they did two movies that year on Prefontaine. Really? The, the writer, Robert Town, did one. And then these were the guys who had done Hoop Dreams from Disney, did the other one. Okay. And, and so okay. what they did, the Disney guys were the ones, because they had done Hoop Dreams, which was more a documentary. They got all, a lot of the original guys. So I know, you know, for, for the Oregon man, they got the original Oregon play-by-play guy from Hayward Field, who would, would call Prefontaine's races. And they, they did as much as they could to make it, to make it real in, in that sense. And that was... That was a lot of fun. I mean, that was, that was, a, I got to learn a lot of things. I mean, because I had some speaking lines, I wasn't treated like an extra. So I actually had a, I'm not going to say a, a complete uh, trailer, but, but a part of a trailer. Uh, I got paid when I, when I showed up and didn't have to work, which was like the best thing about acting, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, most importantly, you got an IMDb so, credit, right? Wait, what? Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was saying most importantly, Graz got an IMDb credit. Of course. Correct. Yes. Of course. Um, so I wanted to move, move things uh, a little more modern, modern sure. day and present day. Um, there was an event that happened, uh, what, just yesterday or the day before? I forget how many days, of what day this week is blended together. Um, but our, 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 uh, our friend, uh, good buddy here, Soul Man, is probably bursting with pride here about the Baseball Hall of Fame announcement. And I was curious, uh, as your thoughts about why certain people got in and certain people did not. I know Abraham and Brian have some, some thoughts on the subject. So I wanted to hear what well, everyone had to say. In my opinion, the baseball hall of fame is bullshit. Mm-hmm. Utter total bullshit. You don't have the best hitter of all time in there. You don't have the best home run hitter of all time in there. You don't have arguably the best right-handed pitcher of all time in there. It's bullshit. Mm-hmm. I mean, I take nothing away from David Ortiz. It's great that he got in uh, to, to have uh, got, I mean, to have someone like Bud Selig in there and not have Barry Bonds in there. I, I think the baseball hall of fame is, is a joke. Yep. I don't think it's seriously anymore. I, I thought that way from Pete Rose, uh, since it's been Pete Rose and they've just, they just amplified it to try and say that they know who did steroids, didn't do steroids during that era where probably 
conservatively 50 or 60 percent, maybe more of players at least tried it if weren't doing it. It's just uh, it's just ridiculous to me. So uh, I think the Baseball Hall of Fame is and it's, it's too bad because uh, it was a great time. I, I went there. I didn't want to go there until I knew someone who was going in. And when Dave Niehaus went in, I went there <laughs> and it was it was a fantastic trip. And, and it was it was cool seeing Niehaus go in. But, um, you know, it, it's just uh, I, I think they, what, what they've done, what they're doing to baseball in general. Is just a lack of understanding of where baseball is. I mean, they don't realize that they're losing the fan base yep. forever. I mean, it's it's going down. It's going <laughs> down. Look, and, and we all love baseball, and, and we're we're the hardcore, and and they got to make big changes, or they're going to lose it entirely. I mean, if you're if you're young, really young, coming up now, why would you go to a baseball game? What is it about baseball that, that that's got appeal for you? I mean, compared to compared to us, so. I just, I was very, very disappointed at how it went down. Mm-hmm. Uh, and look, oh, by the way, Kurt Schilling, uh, who, you know, you can think his, his views are, are ridiculous, but he's not in there either. And that's, that's not because of steroids. It's because of being an asshole. Well, <laughs> yeah. Ty Cobb was an asshole. Ty Cobb, Ty Cobb was, went, yeah. into, went into the stands and beat up a, 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 a handicapped person during a game. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, it's, uh, it's, shameful shameful i think uh, i'll stand by my original statement that the hall of fame is bullshit and that is the final word matt page on this subject yeah <laughs> listen oh, to gross okay. gross knows right. what he's talking about no i i think i think what it is is it stems it's a lack of identity they, they need to decide if they're a shrine or if they're a museum because if you're a shrine then maybe you want to have you know <clears throat> only the best of the brightest and you know be so selective like they're trying with with character and so forth but if you're a museum you need representatives of the steroid era it was a real legit era in the in baseball and you need the people there you need mark mcguire and sammy sosa and and barry mons they supposedly saved baseball they were praising them back then because of the home run race you need to honor that period of baseball matt it's a look i mean you're telling me (laughs) that alex rodriguez is not a hall of famer I mean, I think he's a jackass. Oh, but he's not a <laughs> Hall of Famer. Six hundred ninety-seven home runs at shortstop and third base. It's uh, it's it's not <laughs> that that's not a bad way of putting it. I, I like I like how you put it because it is not a Hall of Fame. It's something else. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Hey, speaking of Hall of Fame, I oh. saw you on YouTube, Graz, um, doing a Dave Craig roast. I did not know this existed as of last week. Wow, and. I, I, well, I got to find this. I have it and I'll put it in the chat for you and I'll put it. Okay. In, thanks. And for those listening on the podcast, I'll have it in the, uh, in the pod being in uh, Spotify link, but Graz, you're amazing. You could be up there on comedy central doing some of the big time roasts. I, I <laughs> it's kind of, by the way, everybody, there was, there were some grown, grown worthy, uh, uh, dad jokes out there up until you get to Graz, but um, you know, Big time. Fast, fast forward, fast forward. Well, I've been in those guys. They went, I, 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 my memory is, is, you know, part of dealing with the physical crap that I deal with is I've got a really spotty, weird memory. I mean, I remember doing some things and I don't remember doing other things. I remember doing the Dave Craig roast. I don't remember a lot about it though, except that I'm absolutely sure that you described it perfectly, that it was, it was, it was colorful language. And, and Craig is just such a such a lovable guy. And, and, and I thank you for that. I really, I really enjoyed doing that stuff. I mean, I, I loved and loved doing stuff like that. It was great. You came in with the chainsaw. Everybody else just had, you know, those, 
scissors they use in grade school. <laughs> when you go blue, go blue. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to roast. Do it right. Um, um, I got I got a serious question. Graz, uh, will you will you talk? Do you mind talking about your Parkinson's disease with us? How you doing? Not at all. Um, I, I'm doing okay. I mean, the, the thing with Parkinson's uh, is um, it, it's different for everyone. Uh, it, it's it, it's got this ridiculous term they call it a boutique disease, which makes it sound cute, which it most certainly isn't. But it, it's different for every every single person that's got their own Parkinson's disease. It's just it's not the same for anyone. Uh, you know, I've I've learned a lot of surprising things. Twenty five percent of the people that have Parkinson's disease never shake, never have a tremor. I don't think I'm going to be one of those people, but but the, one quarter of people never do. Uh, Parkinson's is impacting me in 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 pretty much all the other ways. I mean it. Besides tremors and things like that, it can impact you with depression, which I think it, I, I really had a bad bout of depression and, and that wasn't it, I don't think, but it may have contributed to it without, without knowing it. Uh, it gives me problems with, with, with just stuff like going to the bathroom that you wouldn't believe. It's just terrible constipation that, that just is, is, is constant. I mean, it's just, it's just brutal. Um, so uh, I'm a little worried about, uh, like I said, memory. It's definitely hitting me on, on memory in some places like that. I'm a little stiff moving around, but, uh, you know, I've, I've had, an, unfortunately, I'm, I'm just a, a sea of pre-existing conditions. I mean, I have a heart condition. I've had ulcerative colitis for like 30 years. Um, the fact I'm alive is pretty unbelievable. So I've, <laughs> I, had, I had vascular bypass surgery uh, on my leg about four years ago that, that, you know, the toughest thing that I've ever had to deal with. And, and again, this could have been Parkinson's related. It hadn't, hadn't been diagnosed yet was insomnia. I mean, I had insomnia so bad. And it was during the time that I had insomnia that I found out I had Parkinson's um, that I went into depression and, and, and I'm telling you, I mean, I know depression is a thing. I mean, I, when I hear someone talk, people talk about it. It's, it's a weight. It, it's a real physical thing. And, and I'm not in it now. And, and I don't think Parkinson's would have put me in it. My mother, unfortunately, had it. And she had a really, really hard time with it. And I don't know, it doesn't run in our family, except she has it. And now I have it. So um, at, at this point, it's not, really, it's not really stopping me from doing anything. It's just it, 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 I sense it as a presence in me. Uh, I sense it waiting for its time to, to strike. When it hits me, it's going to hit me pretty hard. I'm pretty sure of that because of all the other stuff that I've got going on. And I've, I've come to terms with it. I mean, I'm just, uh, it is what it is in my case, but I'm trying to do whatever I can for the Parkinson's Association. Um, I, I've done some fundraisers for them and, and continue to want to do as much as I can for that. Uh, you know, the patron saint of this, Michael J. Fox, who's raised almost a billion dollars in his foundation for it. It's just oh. absolutely incredible the work he's done. He's had it for 30 years. Um, you know, Jim Marsh, who was, was in town, who used to be on the, on the Sonics broadcast and yep. this guy I, I met, uh, got it uh, when he was 59, the same age uh, I, I got it. Well, I was diagnosed with it at 59 three years ago. Um, and, um, you know, it really got him after about 10, 12 years. And, and he was a guy in great shape. So um, for me, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's not the, it's, it's, it's coming. I mean, I'm taking the drugs for it. I don't really have a problem with them. Uh, I know that I know the tough days are coming and, and I'm, I'm prepared to deal with them when they come. Um, they're not here yet, and, and I can still tell stories, and I can still have fun, and I still am having fun. 
um, it was it was really tough, you know, because my mom really had a terribly hard time with it. But I think in, in the case of my mother, you know, she she was very healthy and, and lived really healthy her whole life and and never had to deal with anything, you know, feeling bad. And, and then all of a sudden she did. Whereas I've had all this shit going on in my life forever. So I'm, I'm used to feeling crappy yeah. and uh, and just just can, can, can deal with it a little bit better at this point. But it's going to be tough when, when it when it hits big and, and uh, you know, when it does, I'll deal with it. But right now, uh, I'm I'm living living okay with it. I'm I'm taking my medicine like I'm supposed to, and and I need to get this knee replacement done so I can get back to exercising a little bit because that's an important part of, of what you do to try and <laughs> try and you know fight off the symptoms. But you know it's a sentence. It's like a prison sentence. It's not something you recover from. It's mm-hmm. uh, it, it gives you a different perspective on things, and I can see how people get depressed from it because. You know, we all know we're getting older and we all know what, what happens when you get older. But mm. when you have Parkinson's, you, you, you know that that you're something's coming, you know, and it's, it's premature. To, it's going to get you older and it's going to it's, it's not something that kills you, but it's something that's, that's alongside of you when you go. Mm. And uh, it's definitely a different sort of feeling, you know, in terms of, you know, they always talk about optimism being an important word for it. And it is. But it's really hard to be optimistic when you know you've got a degenerative disease that no one knows what to do with it that they can't even prove, you know, this is the other thing too about Parkinson's that, that surprised me a little bit is that it's a diagnosis. They can't prove that you had it. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. So it's, yeah. uh, it, it's, it sucks. But like I said, you know, you just, there's no point in dwelling on it. You, you, mm-hmm. The point is to just keep moving and to keep living. Thank you for sharing. That's pretty cool. Um, qu- question for you about the, uh, your appearances on the 206. Did uh, Chris Cashman drag you into that? Oh, Chris Cashman. Jeez, you know, I had... <laughs> oh, this sounds interesting. Uh, oh, this is, this, is, right. this, is, this is all good. Yes, he did. <laughs> I would do anything for Chris Cashman. Uh, it's one of the few regrets that I have uh, in, in broadcasting is that I didn't get a chance to... Yeah, I'm going to tell you a good story about um, that I don't think has been told about um, when, I, when I came back to Cairo. And, and when I came back to Cairo, you know, I, I worked with, the, remember the name Joe Abel I mentioned, the, the former general manager? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I got him to work with me at Seattle U. And we were looking to get the rights. And so he knew the guys at Cairo real well. And, and he knew Dave Pridemore, who was the general manager there. And, and so they bought the rights. So the first year I did the Seattle U games, I was doing Gras with Gas on KJR and Seattle U games on Cairo which, you know, obviously wasn't <laughs> going to make sense for much longer. So mm-hmm. uh, I talked to Cairo and they said, look, why don't we put you with Calabro and have you work in the afternoons? And, and Kevin oh. is a great guy who I've known since I got to town. And actually even he's impacted my career in ways he didn't know about uh, before that. But uh, that, that, that was great. I thought it was a great idea. And I, I came in and, and did, a little, uh, did a little back and forth with Kevin and it went terrific. And, and so we were going to do this. And so we had this big lunch meeting and I told KJR was leaving and and had this lunch meeting and, and we're having the meeting and, and Kevin after about five minutes in the meeting says, look, I don't want to do this. I want to keep working with Jim Moore. <laughs> so okay. I looked around at the other guys, you know, the, the hierarchy and they are just flabbergasted. <laughs> I'm thinking, okay, they didn't see this coming either. And, and look, I, I, I like Jim Moore a lot too. And I had no, I'm just, there's not anything I have any problem with. I mean, if Kevin wants to work with him, I know something about me. I understand what he's saying entirely. So it's no problem at all. Uh, but, you know, what am I going to do now? 
how are they going to, how are they going to figure out my way in? And so, and so they did. And they, they said, look, what we'll do is we won't carry Colin Coward's show. We'll just have you work, work that shift back in the midday shift. And uh, I said, well, you're going to have me do it with it. And they said, do you have anyone in mind? And so we talked to a guy, I probably shouldn't say his name and I won't. The guy was, was working at KJR at the time as a possibility and, and talked to him about it. And he wasn't particularly interested. And I said, well, look, if, if you're really telling me I can do it with anyone, I mean, you, you, can I do it with Chris Cashman? I didn't think to even ask about Cashman because <laughs> he was doing imaging. He was kind of doing stuff on all the shows, was popping in and out. I didn't think it was even a possibility <laughs> with Chris. And uh, they said that would be great. And, and I just couldn't believe my luck because I think Chris Cashman is one of the most talented people that I've ever worked with, I've ever known. I've, I've known him and, and loved him for years. I met him earlier at KJR. His dad, of course, with, with Almost Live in the day. And, yep. and so it was really exciting to do this show. And, and then it turned out the, the program director they had at the time was a guy, you know, kind of was, was from ESPN and, and said, look, what, what we're doing here is we're, we're not doing the kind of guy's show sort of thing. We're doing a real specific thing. We want, we want to hit the stuff that people care about the most and, and hit it hard. And, and that was the Seahawks and, and, and keep pounding at it. And, and me and Chris were, were doing something completely different. You know, it was the idea was just to do something that, you know, he, it was, he was kind of, we had it set up where I says, you go into that room and you do the comedy and then you come out and bring it to the show. And, and we'll just like, I like to react to things. I'll just react to it. And uh, we only had a chance to do it for a couple of months. And that's no reflection on Bob Steltner, Tom Wassel. I love working with as well. But only got the chance to work with with Chris for six months. So yes, the two hundred six was something that he had me do, and I would <laughs> I would do anything for Chris Cashman. I think he is just a terrific guy, and 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 it was just a pleasure to have a chance to work with him. That's great to hear. We uh, we actually went to a lot. Me and Abraham went to a lot of the tapings. Actually, we uh, we loved that oh. show. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I think you know Chris. They haven't quite found the right vehicle for him, and and I think of. This is going to sound weird, but I think of Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Um, she had done Saturday Night Live for years and was a nothing <laughs> character mm-hmm. until Larry David, that one year that he was on, he was one year he was on that show as a producer, saw her and realized that she was Elaine Bennis on Seinfeld. And that's what, to me, Chris Cashman is. He is this, this huge talent waiting to, to, to find, for the person to put him in the right spot. And it just, you know, the 206 was, everything he's done has been good, yeah. but he's, he can be great. And he just hasn't found it yet. And I think he's going to, and I think someone will find him and he will be the, the big star that I think he's going to be. Awesome. All right. Uh, so I saw a lot of tweets from you last week, uh, following the playoffs for the NFL, mm. big games, big games. This last week was in, obviously insane it was like the greatest weekend for football probably ever uh absolutely but, uh, was i'm curious we're, we're curious here i want to hear everyone's picks for the uh, afc championship and the nfc championship me and my wife went when when i got married in sacramento i proposed to her and and it was funny it was after after doing post game of a of a, of a king's game and uh, we had only been dating for a short period of time, and, and, and I knew I was going to marry her, and we're still married today. And uh, so, you know, actually, it was after the Kings game, and she said yes. And so the first people I told I was getting married were, let's see, it was Joe Klein, Chris Mullen, Mark Eaton, a couple of other uh, Sacramento Kings players. And then the next day, we were going to tell her parents, because her parents were having a Super Bowl party. 
And her dad was just one of the, one of the, I mean, I got along so great with my in-laws that we took them on our honeymoon with us. And her dad was one of these great guys, you know, these famous, you know, had been in World War II and was just <coughs> a, a Marine and, and was just, just a great guy. And he was a huge 49er fan, which at the time I was a huge cowboy fan. So I didn't hold that against him, but that was that. <laughs> and so we proposed him the next day at the Super Bowl party. We told him, and that Super Bowl was the Joe Montana Super Bowl where they beat the Bengals on the last drive. And so I'm picking San Francisco to play Cincinnati for the third time in, in what, 30 years or something like that because they played in 81, 89, and now they're going to play again this year. So I'm, I'm going with the two underdogs, although I can't believe San Francisco's an underdog. They own Los Angeles. <laughs> they kind of do, yeah. Yeah. Brian? Hit us with uh, it. Well, I'm on Graz's bandwagon for those reasons, but I'd like to see Cincinnati win, especially since my Buffalo lost to the Chiefs last weekend. So oh, that was heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking. So, and then I, I just, I don't like the Rams. I don't like the 49ers <laughs> either, but I'd rather see the underdog win. And I don't want to see the Rams play in their own freaking stadium and all the hoopla around it. So I'll, I guess we got to root for NFC just because. So, so I'll be rooting for San Francisco to beat the Bengals in the Super Bowl. Abe? Yeah. So uh, 1984, I think it was, uh, Seahawks defeated the Raiders twice. Could not yep. get it done in the championship game. Same thing happens here. Niners go down to the Rams. Um, and then the AFC, I mean, it's it's the, it's the Chiefs. I, I I think the Bengals are on the precipice of great things, but uh, a little too much, uh, a little too much uh, experience over there on the uh, uh, on the Chiefs sideline. Yeah, I, have to I think agree. that. Well, I think that 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 Bills Chiefs game when when it gets a little more distance between it is is going to go down as one of the, if not the greatest playoff game ever played. I, I'm 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 tempted to call it that right now. I don't think that, that you've ever seen football play. And, and look, yeah. you can say, oh, those guys aren't covering on defense and everything like that. Give the offensives on those teams credit for, for executing at this insanely high yeah. level for, for the most exciting three minutes of football ever played. Yep. And, and it was a great game to, to boot. But, I mean, the, the finish of that game was, was unbelievable. And, and, look, I think, you know, it, it, what they got to do with, with, with NFL rules when it comes to the playoffs is you got to just play an extra 15 minutes of overtime. You know, forget about who scores first or where you got to score a touchdown first. Play 15 minutes of overtime, and, and then if you don't have it figured out, then the, the next team to score wins. But that solves your problem of, of, of other team, you know, getting other guys having a chance to, to do it. And it might have given us another three minutes like we saw at the end of three minutes of regulation <laughs> of that game. It's been a great year because the, I mean, I'm thinking back now, I mean, the regular season ended with one of the greatest games I've ever seen with the, was it the Chargers and the Raiders game? Yeah, um, yeah, that was insane too. Uh, so it's been, it's been, we've been, we've been, we've been graced with some great games to in this NFL year. Do we want to yep. poke guys? Do we want to poke Graz about the Cowboys game? Graz being, of course, uh, the great Cowboys yeah. fan. Oh, you know, I'm gonna why? do it. I'm gonna do it. Know, I, I'm when, doing let it. me tell you something about. <laughs> well, let me tell you briefly why I'm a Cowboys fan, and maybe you won't hold it against me as much. All right. <laughs> so, so this is this is around the time, almost exactly the time. When, I, when I'm discovering radio, my dad, as I mentioned, he was general manager of a station in, in Akron, Ohio, WAKR, but he was also general manager of, of a company called Group One at a station in Dallas, Texas. And in those days, NFL players didn't just play football. They had jobs in the offseason. I mean, the average salary was six or seven thousand bucks. So 
Dave Mad Dog Manders, a great nickname for a center, was the Cowboys center for like their first 12 or 13 years. And he was a salesman <laughs> at my dad's radio station. So they came up when, when, when the Cowboys played the Browns. This would have been before the Jets Colts Super Bowl. It would have been 69. This is how different things were then. The, the Browns are hosting the Cowboys in a first round playoff game. Dave Manders, the center for the Cowboys, stays at our house in Akron, Ohio, before the game in Cleveland. Oh, no. And then shit. we're going to wow. drive him to the game the next day. In fact, I'll never forget, you know, we took him to this, this club for, for breakfast, and he had this is game day. He had a dozen eggs and a rasher of bacon, which I found <laughs> as a pack, the entire package of bacon, wow. and a loaf of toast. That was his pregame meal. Oh, and he had it with us, and then we drove him up to the game. So we went to the game, and, and you know, it was just a wild experience. I was a Browns fan at the time. And so he says, next year, why don't you bring your son down to watch us at training camp? And this was before they were in L.A. They were in training in Dallas in August. And so we go down to training camp, and, and he tells my dad, there's this one problem, though. We're on strike. And no one knew anything about it. It was a three- or four-day strike that they did at the start of training camp in 1970 or 71, I think. And so for three or four days, guys were working out on their own. He said, but don't worry about it. We got about six or seven guys working out, and your son won't know the difference, and which is true. I wouldn't. So we go, and, and it's, it's Dave Manders and Bob Hayes <coughs> and Bob Lilly, the defensive lineman, and there's another offensive lineman there. <coughs> and there's this quarterback there who I've never heard of, but they tell me that he won the Heisman Trophy. <laughs> and I'm a little, you know, with little kids, you know, kind of knowledge. I'm like, well, I've heard of all the Heisman Trophy winners. And I've never heard of you. And he said, <laughs> well, I had to go into the Navy for a few years. So uh, I, I actually won it uh, five years ago. And it was, of course, Roger Staubach. Okay. So Roger says to me, he says, hey, would you like to catch some passes? Wow. Me? Wow. I'd be a Cowboy says, fan, too. Yeah, so he says, <laughs> I says, go ahead. I want you to take 10 steps and turn around, and I'll throw you the ball. The ball will be there. He actually said the ball will be there, which I remember scaring me a little bit, but okay. <laughs> so I take 10 steps and turn around, and of course the ball's not there. He waits. And I just remember him flicking his wrist and the ball hitting me in the stomach and just knocking the air out of me <laughs> and falling down. And I'm trying to catch my breath. You know, I'm not scared or anything like that, but it's just I'm embarrassed. And all these big guys start hovering over me. And this is August in Dallas, Texas. It's 100 Leaping degrees outside. Yeah. And they are drowning me in sweat because they're big <laughs> football players. And they're like, Are you okay, kid? And I, I can't talk. I'm, I'm drowning. You're drowning me. <laughs> so finally, they, they back up and they get off me. And this is here. We got a jersey for you from a guy who just retired, Don Meredith, oh, number seven. Oh, Here's wow. an autographed football for you and an autographed team picture. And I remember driving back to the hotel with my dad. And I said, Dad, you think it'd be okay if I was a Cowboys fan? And he said, yes. <laughs> so that's that, why yeah. I became a Cowboys fan. Okay. Now, fast forward to Jerry Jones oh. when they got, oh, was it Randy Gregory or the guy? No, 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 not Gregory. Who was who the guy, Greg, um, who went into MMA? I'm forgetting oh. his name. He, he, he got into trouble. He was just a low-rent guy. Yeah. Defensive lineman. And he called him a team leader. I wish I could remember his name. Um <laughs> And this is about 10 years ago. And this is a guy who had like, you know, got in trouble beating his wife or something like that. And, mm. and I said, that's it. I'm, I'm, I'm out. I'm done. So I, 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 I kind of walked away from him at that point, <laughs> even though it was, a, it was a long time. It was just, it was just too much to stomach. 
Understood. You still have the jersey and everything that they gave you, though? I still got the jersey, yep. Although it's, I haven't done a good job of hanging on to some stuff that I should have. <laughs> but uh, that, that I've hung on to. Right on. <clears throat> Very cool. Do you have any last questions, Brian, before we... Uh... I know you had your little list. Uh, if I ask these next questions, we will be talking for another two to three hours. So. <laughs> is there me. one, la- I mean, is there one last one? I've got nothing to do but I'll tell I'll... stories, boys. Is there one last and one? We love like... your stories. So, Absolutely. So maybe we, I can save them for another time, Graz. You come back and join us ah, yeah. another time. i got to tell you about, about meeting Muhammad Ali. Oh, wow. I saw oh. him I saw him fight three times. I think we can stick around for one more. If it's going to yeah. be about Muhammad Ali. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> Well, well, well you, um, got, you got to meet so him? it's 70 uh, i want to say 75 or 76 and i'm doing the iona games and and they're they're good with valvano and and i get a call out of the blue from from this guy whose son unfortunately has cystic fibrosis and this was before anything or mid-70s and, and one of the things that used to be big and john costakis made it big here was posters and, you know, they have the poster child for muscular dystrophy, a poster child for, for cystic fibrosis, and they'd have national chairmen of them, and they'd, take, they'd sell those posters to raise money. So Ali was the, the, the national chairman for it, and, and this, this father, who had gone to Iona College, his son was, was going to be the poster child and was going to have his picture taken with Muhammad Ali. And the guy was kind of caught up in, in the fact that he knew I was a young, young guy and I was doing the games. He thought I did a really good job. And he asked me if I wanted to go down to Deer Lake, Pennsylvania, where Ali trained for the picture-taking thing and just to see it. And I'm like, really? You really want, to, want me to go? And he said, well, yeah, you, you, I understand you're a young guy getting started, and I'm impressed with what you're doing, and, and we'd like to have you come. And, and you know, ask your father, ask your parents if it's okay. And, and so I did, and, and it was. And and seems like you know a week later, we're, we're driving. It's about a four-hour drive from... New York, we're driving to this this famous camp that Ali had. I don't know if you guys have heard of it in Deer Lake, where he had all these rocks with the names of heavyweight champions on them. And it's about a five cabin place. And you can look it up afterwards. And he did it because, you know, he, he was life was being threatened in a lot of places. So it gave him some security. And so we're in there and, and there's no no media there or anything like that. And so there's about 30 people watching him spar, I think, with Larry Holmes. But I, I couldn't be certain about that. But he was sparring, and um, he finished sparring. And, and I brought my mic and tape recorder just because I was a good reporter. But I never expected to use it, and I, I kept it covered because there wasn't supposed to be any press there. <laughs> and so he, Ali finishes, and he goes into this back room, and, and about three minutes later, Bundini Brown comes out and, and waves the kid and, and his father back there, and he says, come on. I said, I'm, look, I'll wait right here. You guys, you guys do your thing. You've already, you've already gone above and beyond for me on this. And, and he says, fine, fine. And so... They go in there, and, and about five minutes later, the kid's dad pokes his head out and points at me and waves me to come in, <laughs> and I can't believe it. And so I get up, wow. and he says, he, 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 pantomimes, you know, tape player, tape recorder, and, and holding a mic up, and I'm like, no. He says, bring it, bring it. So I, I, I walk in, and I, I literally, you know, you walk into a room, and you, you stand right against the closed door because you don't want anyone to notice you. And I don't see Ali in the room, but my God, I mean, Angelo Dundee, I mean, Bandini, uh, his brother, uh, I, all these guys that you know are in there. And there's a big couch in there, and there's a figure under a bunch of towels. And all of a sudden, the towels go flying. And it's Ali with his eyes bulging. <laughs> and he says, I smell a reporter. 
Nice. Oh. <laughs> and I literally shit my pants. I mean, like, oh, my God. oh, my God. Am I in trouble? Now, what has this guy done to me? Am I in trouble now? And he says, you, you're a reporter. And I'm like, well, champ, I, I you know, I, I just, I'm just a kid. I'm just, I'm just 16, 15 years old. I'm just, you come with me. And I'm like, he's going to kill me. He's going to kill me. And no one's going to know. No one's going to know because it's out here in the woods in Pennsylvania and I'm with him alone. And no one's going to know. He spends the next 10 minutes walking me from cabin to cabin, talking nonstop. Okay. This is where I work. This is where I came up here. I came up here because a lot of people didn't like that. I stood against the war and I had a lot of threats in my life. So I had to, I had to build this place and built this place. I brought up my, my people to cook for me. And, and we walked in there to the room where we oh, see wow. cooking. We lunch there and here's a picture of me in the golden gloves, the famous picture of him when he's 13 years old. And, and he says, all right, let's go back out here. And I see that rock. That's Rocky Marciano. And I fought a computer fight against him. And, and I, I can't believe it. He's just going on and on and on and on. And, and I'm thinking, geez, it's too bad. I'm not recording this, but you know, so what? It's just such an amazing thing. And, cool. and I'm never going to forget it the rest of my life. And so we finish and he says, all right, turn on your tape player. I'll answer a question. So this is, this was, you know, my dream that, that I might have a chance to do this. So I, I, I thought, you know, if I had the chance, I should try and find something to ask him about that maybe he wasn't, wasn't being asked about. So I was going to ask him about the fight. And this is, this is what Ali was like and how big he was. How, it's so hard to explain how, how, how big he was when he was at his peak. He had come up with this idea for this organization, and it was called World. And it was going to solve all the problems in the world. <laughs> that was the idea behind it. That was, the, that was the, the, way, the macro way that guy thought. And so I said, you know, I've, I've heard about this organization, World. And, and, which, and so he goes on for about 15 minutes and talks about the fight in the middle of it and does everything. And, and I said, that's great. Thank you. That's fine. And, and turned my tape player off and, and, you know, went driving back to, the, to, to New York on cloud nine. Couldn't believe it had happened. I literally went right, right to the radio station and, and, and grabbed the tape and, and edited it a little bit so I could cut, come with a little 40-second cut that we could play on the air. And I, I did that, and I, I was, wasn't thinking, and I left the tape in the room and, and went in and did the little report. And, and oh, God, I you know, remembered about 45 minutes later that I'd left the tape uh, back in, in, the, in one of the other studios. I went in there, and it had been erased. Oh no! Oh no! It wasn't anyone's fault. I mean, they just—it was sitting there, and that's what you did. You you'd erase tapes and you stack them to be reused. There was no nothing to tell them not to erase that tape. And yeah, and I, you know, I, oh, I still think about it today, and and can't believe it. But but I mean, man, what an experience to have! What an absolutely unbelievable experience to have! And and uh, uh, I have never and will never forget it. So oh, you got awesome. you you got your the wind knocked out of you by Roger the Dodger. Um, you got threatened by George the Animal Steel, and uh, you had the living daylight scared not, out of you by not uh, bad. Muhammad Ali. Not bad. <laughs> now, 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 the Jack Nicholas Arnold Palmer naked stories, we'll save that for the next time. Oh, okay. <laughs> right. right on. So at, at the end of our show, we always like to end on a positive note. This is one of Brian Solek's rules, um, where we give a shout out to uh, someone, someplace, something that... Uh, that we're grateful for. Um, uh, and we'll save you for the end Graz. And maybe you can also plug any Twitter handles you have or, uh, any, uh, promotional okay. stuff you'd like to ongoing have. projects. Yeah. Um, Brian, do you want to kick it off? Sure. I'll kick it off. I'm going to do a quick promo and then do my shout out. Um, please, please everybody listen to this podcast with the Graz once we get it posted. Um, great guy. Great stories. So, 
We hope you listen. And uh, next two weeks, we have Rob Nyer on from formerly of ESPN, and he's now the president of the West Coast League. And then we have Keith Law on the following week. So we got some good... Some baseball coming up. Good baseball coming up. So I just wanted to share that with you all. And uh, you, you mentioned cystic fibrosis, which triggered a shout out. My, my nephew passed away from cystic fibrosis back in 2001. Mm. Um, I want to give a shout out to former Sonic Michael Cage. He's now an announcer for that Oklahoma team, but I'll forgive him for that. But he, he visited my nephew every every time he's in Seattle. He spent hours and hours with him at this children's hospital. So you're a good guy, man, and I, I hope you get this message. Thank you for <laughs> that was a dream for my nephew. So thank you, Michael Cage. All right, I'll go next, and uh, my shout outs to uh, Keith Pankow. I helped him set up his uh, podcast that he just started. Uh, here on Podbean, Spotify, and iTunes. It's called That That All May Be Edified. And uh, this week he interviewed Dr. Kathy Kavanaugh, uh, the chief, chief, uh, chief information director at uh, uh, University of Florida. So check out his podcast. Uh, he's got it up and running, and he's got a lot of great stuff, especially uh, as, it relates, as it relates to uh, le- uh, service leadership is what it's called. Matt? Uh, all right. Now, you guys have these all these meaningful ones. I was just thinking because of, you know, we were talking about Seattle U so much. I was going to give a shout out to the Seattle men's basketball team, Seattle U men and men's basketball team, who are currently undefeated in conference play right now and kicking butt. They are, uh, they're on fire. And uh, go Red Hawks. All right. Uh, let's see. Uh, I, I'm uh, at the Graz is my Twitter handle. If anyone wants to wants to dial by there, and and I tend to try and post uh, fun stuff whenever I can. And I'd like to do my shout out to you guys. I think you're doing a, a terrific job in keeping alive uh, the sports radio format. And and just by the the good stuff you talked about there at the end, it's a reminder that that when you when you take take on something like this, you can have a positive impact. Mm-hmm. And uh, it depends on your attitude first and, and uh, have a positive attitude in everything you do and in, in how you go about your life. And, and uh, look, it's worked for me and, and, and no way you're dealing with as many things as I'm dealing with right now. So so stay on the positive side and, and you guys keep doing what you're doing. Uh, you're keeping alive uh, a, a great form of conversation and, uh, and doing a great job of it. Thank you for that. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for being on the show, Graz. Uh, and everyone i uh, just want to remind you this is the seattle sports union podcast you can find us on itunes podbean facebook we are on facebook we're on twitter we're we're very likable you should like us on facebook and twitter i, I think we're <laughs> likable right guys absolutely yeah we're likable. my mother says like so. us like us there check us out there check us out all over the place uh and follow uh also follow soul soul man on uh, on twitter as well uh thanks for listening Okay, fellas. Recording stopped. All right. That's a show. Thank you, Graz. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you guys very much for that and continue good luck and continued success. Thanks a lot. Try not to have any more athletes, you know, you know, scare the hell out of you here. Yeah. (laughs) Crazy, man. (laughs) Maybe, maybe return the favor to a few of them. Yeah. yeah, Scare them instead. (laughs) Yeah. That's, that's, that's something I probably should have thought of. (laughs) (laughs) Make sure those doctors fucking take care of you too, please. Yeah, I'll do, I'll do my best with that. Okay. Nice meeting you. Have a great day. Yeah. Have a good night. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Hey.